Well, good morning, you brave ones. I looked out my window this morning and thought, if I weren't preaching, I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. Uh, today we're going to talk about the passage in John that's the triumphal entry, where Jesus enters Jerusalem a week before his death and passion and resurrection. Now, if any of you are minded in terms of the church calendar, you'll know that we're a week off. Next week is Palm Sunday. Um, you've not slept through a week or missed something. Um, but this series in John has been going on since before I was even attending this church, and we're still in it, and it just so happened that these passages lined up for these weeks. It was great. So we're very happy to be talking about this passage today. I have three goals for us this morning. Um, one, I want to just give you some background for the passage itself. I want you to know what's going on. <clears throat> then I want to spend time focusing on a key issue, which is the reversal of the crowd. So one week they're with Jesus, the next week they're not, and I want to talk about that switch. And then I want to use that to finish up by talking about what faith looks like. So we're going to talk about the passage, we'll talk about the reversal, and then we'll talk about faith. Let's look at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, and I'll read this for you now. I'll read from the screen, since so we're all reading the same words. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is John's account of the triumphal entry. If you read the parallel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's, there's differences throughout. Um, there's not a big deal to focus on the differences right now. Uh, the crowds are sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller. Different things are going on. They, slight, they say slightly different things. People are upset by slightly different things. But there's a few things that are consistent, like the donkey and the scriptures that are quoted, and just kind of a general oddity. Like, why is it exciting that Jesus once rode a donkey? You guys ever seen a donkey? They're rather ridiculous animals. Have you heard them bray? It is the most annoying, ridiculous sound in the world. Um, and then people, why are they waving branches? Yay! I always, think, I always think it's kind of pathetic. I know I shouldn't think that because it's Jesus, but I always think this is really a weird, weird moment. Well, I think there's all sorts of um, Old Testament stuff here, and we're not going to get into all of it, but I just want to highlight the donkey and the song, all right? So the first is the donkey. And like I said, today we think of the donkey as a rather silly, ridiculous animal. It's got those long ears. Maybe think of Eeyore. I'm sorry. Right? He's got that really depressed voice. Well, the thing you have to remember is that Israel is not a terribly flat place. And it's immensely rocky. Everywhere you look, it's just boulders and rocks wherever you go. And that just means simply it's really not a great place for horses. You can't bring them to a gallop. There's not a lot of green land for grass. You can't feed your horses. And so the donkey is a much more suitable animal for any kind of pack horse purposes you might have in that area. Um, Israel is also traditionally a rel relatively poor place. If you go to Israel today, they'll talk about, if you travel from Israel into like Jordan or Lebanon, they'll say, you are now leaving the land of milk and honey and entering the land of oil and money. Um, and there's this transition. They recognize that there's oil everywhere but in Israel. 
How is this possible? <laughs> How can we be this land of great wealth and have none of the wealth of the modern world? Um, it's astonishing. But Israel has been traditionally quite poor, and horses are a wealthy animal. It's a sign of status. Um, when Solomon begins to expand his kingdom, he builds stables and collects horses. And when the authors of the Bible record Solomon's collection of wealth, you kind of wonder, was this a good idea, Solomon? Like, you can't use these horses. They're not, they're not useful. There's no place where you could, like, hook up a chariot and charge someone in Israel. You're going to knock the wheels off of your chariot. So um, it's, it's, there's some dubious stuff. So anyway, the donkey somehow becomes a symbol of status, and riding on a donkey becomes a symbol of exaltation. Um, and this is just one of the things that seems to have happened in history. We have a couple things that give us clues to this. One is that um, when the succession between David and Solomon happens, there's all sorts of goofy stuff. Some, David's, got, David's had a lot of wives. He's got a lot of kids. Um, some of his other kids are thinking, hey, I'm going to be king. And the way that David marks Solomon to be his successor is by putting him on a donkey. Uh, so here we go. Uh, 1 Kings 1, verses 32 and 3. Uh, this is David's plot. King David said, call to me Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. And they, so they came before the king, and the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. So somehow presenting Solomon on a mule is going to be the thing that says, ah, he's going to be the king. So just have to take it that this is what they thought, because we don't see people on donkeys and think, that's a king right there. Uh, we're a little different. And then this later, probably because of this king's reference and some of the, this opinion about donkeys, leads to uh, Zechariah's promise in Zechariah 9.9, where he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's a promise in the book of Zechariah that when the king comes, when the king returns, you're going to know him because he'll be on a donkey. Um, this, leads to, this verse leads to some funny things. He says, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's, but he's, on, he's on a baby donkey, not, not even a full, he's on baby donkey, not full-size donkey. Um, but when Matthew reads this, it's funny, he has Jesus ride in on like two donkeys. There's two side by side which is a kind of a funny thing. And if you want to know why Matthew has two donkeys and everybody else has one, you can ask me later, and I'll tell you why Matthew does things. Because he does all sorts of things twice. Never mind. This is totally relevant. Forget it for this sermon. The point is, um, <laughs> the point is the donkey is a symbol of kingship, and this isn't lost on the crowd. So go back to John uh, chapter 12 and verse 13. John 12, 13. The next day, uh, so they took branches, palm trees, went out to meet him. Um, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote. And then, even the king of Israel. Like, they've connected the dots. Jesus on donkey, king of Israel. So the crowd, at least, this is what they are thinking when Jesus rides into Jerusalem a week before his death. So let's shift into the song. Uh, this again, verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is a quote um, from Psalm 118. So they've got the Zechariah passage, but they've also got Psalm 118 in their heads. Now, I'm going to give you a very brief run-through of Psalm 118, we could probably spend an hour on Psalm 118, and we'd all be enriched greatly. You're going to get the, just the fat off of the top of it right now. So here we go. The brief story of this psalm is very interesting. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Uh, this is the story. The psalm is wonderful because it tells a story. You can, go, you can read the story and follow through. But the beginning of the story is a guy in trouble. Out of my distress. 
something's wrong in my life. I'm oppressed, things are not going well, and I've called to the Lord in my distress. Now, we find out in the psalm that he's being oppressed by people around him. He's got accusers. He's got enemies. He's an embattled individual. He's beset with troubles, but the Lord has been faithful, which is why he's singing this song. So then um, he goes through parts of his journey. We get to verses 19 through 21. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So he, the guy, has been vindicated at some point. God's answered, and now he's entering into Jerusalem, and they see the entering in as a sign of everything's going great. So when the crowd, apparently when the crowd sees Jesus entering in, they think of this stuff. Ah, he opened the gates of salvation. There's been some vindication. Something great's going to happen with this guy. Uh, and that's part of the story. Uh, it moves on to verse 22, and this is um, a key verse throughout the New Testament. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I really like this verse. It's one of my favorite Old Testament verses because it plays so powerfully in how the New Testament views Christ, how it views the life of faith. Essentially, this guy, he was rejected. He was set on the outside. They thought, he's no good, but what's been put on the outside has been made the foundation of what God's doing. You thought that you had done your... So the enemy thought they had succeeded in knocking you off. But actually, God's proving that he's with me by building new stuff upon me. Uh, the cornerstone is an architectural stone. It's not, course, not... Don't think keystone like an arch. Think this is like the square that fits in the corner, and the rest of the building takes its direction from that first stone. It's a, it's a plotting stone. Everything that follows comes on the placement of that stone. And because this guy's been vindicated by the Lord, everything that follows will be built on this vindication that God has done. And this is part of the story of Psalm 118. Um, he's been rescued, and now what is rejected has become the foundation. The low has become the high. And this is why we get verse 26, near the end of the psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the right response when you see that God is vindicated and doing this mighty work on this person, the right response is to say, blessed are you, because you come in the name of the Lord. And this is part of me building my life properly according to this new cornerstone that tells me how things are supposed to be orientated. Uh, and that's, that's part of the story of Psalm 118. It's a wonderful psalm. There's lots of great stuff going on in here. We should probably come back to another time. But uh, when we come back to the passage... Uh, the crowd sees Jesus riding a donkey. They got kingship thoughts going through their heads. They're seeing all sorts of things. They see Jesus fighting with the Pharisees. He's the embattled guy. They don't like him. They kind of like that Jesus may actually do something powerful, and they're having Psalm 118 thoughts. They're thinking, hey, this may be the guy coming in the name of the Lord. Maybe something really good is going to come from this, and so they're getting excited. We're not sure how far their understanding goes, but it's clear that they've got some great anticipation. So... Um, this is the, that's the passage, and I told you that I wanted to focus now on this reversal. So we have some idea of the, the crowd's anticipation for Jesus. Why do they turn on him in a week? Why do the crowds go from Hosanna on, on, on Sunday, Palm Sunday, to crucify him on Good Friday? How does that, that's a pretty rapid transition, pretty stark reversal when you think about what this looks like. So um, I think first, a lot of this depends on what kind of king it is that you're expecting. Um, who are you looking for? Um, all accounts indicate that the local Jews and even Jesus' followers were expecting a violent overthrow of Rome. They're looking for Jesus to bucket to the big guy, and he doesn't do it. And so there's some great disappointment in that. Uh, it's possible that some of his followers are anticipating an overthrow or at least a correction of the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees had become a, occasionally kind of oppressive spiritual force. And Jesus, you know, he's going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, and he's winning in the battles, and it's kind of exciting. It's, isn't it fun to watch a great arguer beat other people? And then you have a sense of like, ooh, you deserve that. And the crowds are probably feeling some of that, ooh, Jesus is good at this. And that's fun. And so they're looking for more of that, and he fails those disappointments as well. Um, But Jesus doesn't meet these expectations. And the reversal is absolutely astonishing in its ferocity. And I was wondering if we could make sense of it, and I thought, the funny example I thought, it's not actually a funny example, the ironic example I thought of was the story of Andres Escobar. Does anybody know Andres Escobar's name? Anybody know this guy? He was a defender for Colombia in the 1984 FIFA World Cup, and um, he, he miscalculated a kick and scored an own goal in the game against the U.S., and the U.S. won 2-1 to one that match. Five days later, he was at home in Colombia, and he was shot to death six times. One for each time the announcer had shouted, goal. Now, maybe the parallel's not quite right, but I think there's some, some, something here. Colombia, small nation. USA, big nation. Colombia, historically with a lot of meddling from the U.S., um, maybe some bad feelings. And here the team goes forward with great anticipation and fanfare. You're going to beat them. You're going to beat them. Because, let's face it, the U.S. is terrible at soccer. Terrible. And the Colombians breathe it. It's just, it's different. And you lost. And you get home. And the crowd turns on you. And I think maybe, maybe we can make some sense of how this crowd turns on Jesus. But more than that, I want to spend some time focusing on this phenomenon of reversal. And I want to talk about um, what this means for us. And actually, I want to reflect that Jesus is abandoned by everybody. Um, He loses almost all of his friends and all of his followers. And at the end of it, there's like two people left. It's John and his mom. That's it. And everybody's gone. And we have to think about what happened. And I think that the short answer is that the trial of Holy Week exposed the fair-weather friendship of Jesus' followers. A lot of fair-weather followers of Jesus. And this is what I want to think about for a minute, is what are the characteristics of fair-weather followers? And I think I can identify about three of them. There's probably more, but these are the three that I came up with this week reflecting on this. All right? They all have the letter B in them, um, and one of them has a B that reflects Jim's capacity for P, which is, um, yeah, it works. So um, each, uh, I'm going to identify three kinds of followers, and I think they all have slogans. So let's, we'll take a few minutes about this. So uh, the first group is bandwagon followers. They're bandwagon people who are following after Jesus. And I think their slogan is, I'm with you while you win. I'm with you, Jesus, while you're winning. And when Jesus loses, eh, I don't, I don't sit with losers. Uh, we know this phenomenon with sports teams quite well. All of you know that the true fans, I put the word in scare quotes, the true fans are fans even when the team loses, or maybe especially when the team loses. That marks the true fan. The fake fans show up when the team starts winning. I, I grew up near Chicago. If any of you know the team, the Cubs, I hate the Cubs. I hate Cubs fans. 
I hate everything to do with the Cubs. I despise them as an entity. But it's the biggest, it's the biggest bandwagon thing that happens because there's these, my friend used to, because the Cubs used to never win. My friend used to say, to, he'd, say, he'd, say to, he'd say to men, he'd say, if you can find a girl who's a Cubs fan, that's really good because she'll stay with you no matter what. <laughs> and it was a test of your loyalty to be, have been a fan for so many years and seen so many events and seen so many things happen, and it was, it was often just absurd. But those are the real fans, the ones who stick with it. And then they start to win, and a city becomes a big hotbed of Cubs fans suddenly, and everyone's wearing Cubs swag, and they're all doing Cubs things, and they're wearing hats, and they're going to parades, and they're cheering, and they're changing their profile pictures, and I just want to vomit a little bit when that stuff happens. They're all bandwagon followers. They're attracted to winning. They're attracted to popularity. They love the faddishness of being part of something that's happening, and that's fun. And I think we see this in the passage here. There is a buzz following the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Stuff's happening. Did you hear that? He was dead four days, and Jesus spoke a word, and the guy came out. Let's go see if something else is going to happen. And people started joining the bandwagon of Jesus' followers. There's a lot of people who want to be where they think things are at. And we see this in the church, too. Have you heard that there's an outpouring of the Spirit at this church in Edinburgh? Let's go. You chase it. You want to see the things that are happening. You want to be there for the action. And it's a bandwagon spirit. So, bandwagon followers. There's another category of people, I think. They're belly benefiters. I like that one. Belly benefiters. They've got a, they've got a slogan as well. I'm with you while I get something I want, or I'm in so long as there's a meal. <laughs> Belly's full. I'm going to hang out with you, Jesus. If I get hungry, I'm going to go somewhere else. The truth for these people is often irrelevant. The message is irrelevant. The mission of what Jesus is doing is not important. Only the full belly, only the satisfaction of this desire that I have matters. If you do the miracle, Jesus, I'm in. Give me the answer to this prayer, Jesus, and I'll stay. Uh, help me with this relationship, and I'll, I'll, I'll stick with you. And I, the irony is that these people, in my experience, often hold something over, over God. So they come in an attitude of need, and this is what's weird. They use their need to leverage for power and position with God. And then they use a logic like this. God, if you want me as a follower, here are my conditions. I always think that's a funny kind of bargain. Like, really? You're going to bargain? I mean, it's okay. God seems to invite some of this stuff. And there's a spiritual mercenary attitude. I'm faith for hire. I'm with you while it looks good. In a stunning passage in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and it becomes clear that the crowd is following him because he fed them. You're here because you want more bread. And he's just basically done a manna miracle, right? Israel's following in the wilderness, and Moses speaks, and then God drops the, he causes the manna to appear on the ground, and they're thinking, hey, free food, this is great. And Jesus calls them out on it and says, actually, the food you have to eat is my flesh and my blood. And it says that many of his followers turned away at that point because he called them out on their belly following. It's astonishing. I think we play the mercenary game as church followers as well. I'm here so long as I get filled by the Spirit. I'll stick as long as I'm aware of the Spirit's presence, but if he goes, I'm out. Hmm, is, is that a kind of mercenary deal? You making a bargain with God there? It's astonishing, I think. 
I'll stay if you answer this prayer. That's my favorite one. Well, no, that's not my favorite one, but you know what I mean. If I get what I want. It's good. Many times, and just to be a little more generous, many times um, there's just a complete lack of self-awareness this is going on, that people don't know they're doing it until it's been identified for them. And then, oh, I've done this. So we have bandwagoners, we have the belly people, and then here's, in honor of Jim, we have easy breezy believers. <laughs> did you like that? Okay, I did that for you. Um, their slogan is, I'm with you so long as it doesn't cost me anything. As soon as it gets personal, I'm out. Give me the straight road, give me the easy road, but give me some curveballs, and I don't want anything to do with this. And we see this, that the way of Christ is great right up until the cross gets involved. And that cross looms on the horizon, especially of Holy Week right now. And so I'm reminded, of course, of the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It says, this is the phrase, oh boy. He says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he says, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, then come and follow me. And he says, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, we don't know what happened after the fact. Did he go away sad, and then did he repent and sell all this stuff and come follow Jesus? It doesn't tell us. And Jesus returns to the crowd and says, it's truly, truly, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. You think, oh. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Go sell it all. You know, Jesus, don't look at me. <laughs> it's okay if you just kind of like me. I don't need to be loved. <laughs> We don't know. We don't know. What I can probably tell you with some confidence is that for the rest of his life on earth, if he maintained his wealth, it was poison for him. He didn't enjoy a meal or a drink or an event that he paid for like he would have otherwise because he knew that somehow this is an exchange for his eternal life. And that's Jesus for you. And then we see, and the passage I read from, I referenced from John earlier, that Jesus said, uh, many follow, and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you going to go too? And Peter says, always Peter speaking up, says, um, to, where will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. What a lovely commitment Peter gives. We've given up all sorts of things to be with you, Lord, and we're going to stick with you, except he still ditches Jesus later. Even the best of us make a muck of it. So what are we going to do about this? We've got bandwagoners, and we've got people chasing their bellies. We've got people who are here as long as it's easy. What do we do about people in the kingdom, not the kingdom vineyard, the kingdom broadly? What do we do about people in the kingdom who are bandwagoners? What do we do about people we meet who are here chiefly because of their belly? What do we do about people who you know are going to bail as soon as it gets hard? Do we look down on them? Do we make them more special T-shirts? Like, you're a noob, so we'll make sure you're known as a noob in the church, because we know you'll bail. Do we beat them into submission? Do we publicly shame them? What do we do? What do we do if we think we might be some of these people? How do we respond? Well, I think it's astonishing that the story of Jesus appears to show us that nearly all of his followers end up being there because they're on the bandwagon, or because it's easy, or because their bellies are being satisfied. When Jesus stands condemned and crucified, like I said, only John, Mary, and a few obscure followers remain. There's like one Pharisee, Nicodemus, who comes at night 
And Joseph of Arimathea, where'd he come from? They're not even named people. They just, there's some women who are in the ancient world irrelevant witnesses. They're, it's not like they're important. All the important people, I put that in quotes, are gone. All the people who are supposed to be there have vacated. And, and it's just Jesus alone. And the disciples were all proved fair weather followers. They were with him while it was fair. I think there's two lessons that we can learn from this. Two key, there's probably 20 lessons, but two that I'm going to talk about. Lesson number one, it doesn't matter how you come into the kingdom because nobody at the beginning has any concept of what it's really all about. It doesn't matter what motive you had when you came in the door because nobody has any idea what it's really all about. And you won't know. You won't know until the cross shows up and then you'll say, oh, this is what it's really all about. Everybody comes in with mixed motives. And that means it's pointless to question people's motives when they come into the church. It's just not worth it. Because you yourselves have mixed motives. And the moment you try to live the Christian life faithfully, that will purify your motives. You'll discover, oh, this is what it's really all about. And it will do this by pressing you and them to make a choice. Do I stay or do I go? Uh, George MacDonald is one of my favorite authors. Um, you guys, if you don't know him, Scottish preacher, uh, born near Aberdeen, uh, famous author, wrote some fantastic stories, really influential on Lewis and Tolkien and modern fantasy, anything you've enjoyed. If you like fantasy at all, George MacDonald is like the great-grandfather of all of it. And he wrote in one of his sermons the phrase, I love this phrase, he says, obedience is the opener of eyes. Obedience is the opener of eyes. Now, I like that on its own because it's true that if you try to obey, things are going to be transformed and you'll begin to see and understand things in a fresh way. But I think we can also modify it slightly and say that the test of obedience is also an opener of your eyes. And when your obedience is tested, you get to ask yourself, do I really mean this? Do I really want this? The rich young ruler is tested in his obedience. Well, I, do I really want the eternal life that Jesus offers? if I have to weigh it against my earthly wealth. And that test of obedience also opened his eyes vividly. I'm reminded of the, one of Jesus' opening teaching parables. It's often called the parable of the sower, but I think that might be a slight mistake because the real focus is on the soils. So Jesus tells the story about this, um, this farmer who goes out and tosses seed like a madman. He just throws it everywhere. Uh, when you or I plant seed, we plant carefully. We think, oh, this looks good. I'll put this seed here one at a time, press it down, pat it nicely. We do all sorts of little things to care for it. But this guy just takes the seed and tosses it everywhere. He says, some of it falls on hard-packed path, and birds come and eat it up. Some of it lands among rocky soil, and it grows some root, but then the sun comes up and causes it to die. So it never has a deep root. Some of it grows up among thorns, and then the thorns come and choke it. They strangle it, and then, then they're useless also. But some of it falls among good soil and bears fruit 30, 60, or 100-fold. And then Jesus finishes one of the great phrases. He says, let him who has ears hear what I'm saying. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. And the disciples go to him and say, explain it to us. He says, look, it's, and I'll, this is my paraphrase. It's the life of faith. The seed is the word of God. We preach it. We plant it. And it seems to be that as a sower, as God is a sower, he's indiscriminate with where he puts stuff. 
He's not plotting for just the best. He's going to give everybody a chance. He says, some people it lands and it's hard and the devil comes and just takes it away before it can do any good. And some of it lands and it's rocky and they can't ever get deep enough because the rocks choke them out. And some of it lands and the worries of the world and anxieties come and choke them aside as well. But sometimes it lands on good soil and bears great fruit. Now, I think my interpretation of this is slightly unique, but I think this is true. God is in the business not of only finding people who are predisposed to be good soil. It's not like, Caitlin, you're good soil. Jim, little rocky. Rachel, sorry, you're thorns, right? <laughs> Axed, right, from the start. I think that God is in the business of changing what kind of soil you are. I think he's in the business of when you look back and realize, I got choked out, he's going to give you another chance. He's going to give you a chance to deal with some of those thorns. You discover you're rocky and shallow. He's going to give you another chance because he's in the business of transforming lives and souls. And so, this leads to my second lesson. I think faith is only proved in the test of obedience. Faith is only proved in the test of obedience, not in the success of your obedience, but in the test of your obedience. Peter fails. Ten other apostles fail. Only one in 12 succeeds. That's an 8% success rate for Jesus' ministry. That's remarkably low. If those were marks for your essays here at university, you'd be depressed. But it tells us that Christianity is nothing if not a religion of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances, and we can count all the way to 70 times 7, and the point of that story, when Jesus says you should forgive your brother 70 times 7, is that you shouldn't be counting. If you're counting, you're doing it wrong. And so we fall, and we get up. And we fail our obedience, and we pick it up again. And I think the church is the place where we fail together, and we pick up together, and say, let's try again. This time we got choked. Man, that was terrible. How can we not get choked next time? Well, we tried that, and it didn't take root. What, what happened? How do we get this? Wow, this really bore fruit. That's great. Let's use the seed to try again in these other places. And I think it gives us a vision for what maybe faith looks like just a little bit. So uh, I want to ask you some questions as we draw to a close, and we're going to move into our time of um, worship and prayer and response. And so here are the questions I have for you. Do you see in yourself, a fair-weather follower of Jesus? Can you identify your bandwagon tendencies? Can you see the places where your belly has led your spiritual life? Are you aware of how you're here because it's easy sometimes and you don't like it when it gets hard? Have you ever judged others for being fair-weather followers? Have you judged the failure of other people? You might need to repent from that. All of you can think of places where you have failed in your personal obedience. God does not ask everyone to give up everything um, in the same way that he asked the rich young ruler, but he will ask you for something, and it will hurt. And maybe you can think back to a time you failed that obedience. Or maybe, at the very least, what you desire is a second or third or fortieth chance Jesus, give me another chance today. So let me invite Ashton to come up.
Let me pray for you. Um, and we're going to have a time of responsive prayer. So if you feel like you need prayer, actually, you need prayer for anything. Doesn't, anything it doesn't have to be anything talked about. You can pray about anything you need to pray about. Um, come forward, and members of the home groups will come and lay hands on you and pray for you and hopefully speak the words of the Lord to you today. So let's bow our heads. And uh, let's stand as well. Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm so grateful. It's weird to say, but I'm so grateful that everybody failed you. Um, because it lowers the standard for us, but shows us that there's a space for us, a place for us to be among you. That you're not interested in, in shiny success stories. You're interested in a slow growth of faith. Where we have those places of rocky soil, Lord, or thorns in our hearts, or a hard path where we're simply just resisting your word, would you expose those to us and give us new chances to turn to you? I thank you, Jesus, for who you are and for the work you do, and I thank you that you are our king. In your name I pray.